Will Martin Luther, the renowned German reformer, was converted when he finally understood the Bible's teaching on justification. We've talked a little bit about Luther already in this series. And during our last sermon in the series, we saw that Christians are made right before God or justified by what? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Not by works of the law, not by doing good or by being good in and of ourselves. We saw that. We've seen that here in our series. But it took Luther, you see, some time in his religious life to come to that glorious discovery himself. And God's providence in Luther's life to bring him to the point of conversion and to use Luther to be part of reforming or really transforming Christianity is quite remarkable. For instance, let me share you a little bit about Luther's life. In his early 20s, Luther was caught in a lightning storm, and it was so bad he thought he was going to die. And he promised in that storm, in a prayer to a saint, because at the time, Luther was Roman Catholic, and they would pray to saints. So he prays to a saint, and he said that if, if he was helped through the storm and he didn't die, he'd devote his life to the ministry if he were spared. Well, Luther survived the storm, and he made good on his word, and he became a monk. And Luther, you see, was a brilliant student of the Bible through seminary, and he rose through the ranks of Roman Catholicism. And Luther's religious fervor, it was unmatched. One article put it this way. He, talking about Luther, entered the Augustinian order at Erfurt. He, play, he prayed eight times a day, slept little, and performed painful self-infliction for his sins. He was attempting to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yet, he was miserably bound by the law. Goes on to say that Luther was known for confessing his sins so often that he would stay up all night and the priests would grow weary whenever Luther showed up. They would exclaim, oh no, Luther's here again. We are going to have to stay up all night because of it. And later, Luther was given a prestigious teaching position where he lectured through the Psalms, Romans, and even Galatians, the book of the Bible that we're going through now, and, and even Hebrews. But, hear this, he was not yet converted at the time. Teacher of the Bible, knew the scriptures, yet he wasn't converted. You see, Luther wrestled with this concept of the righteousness of God. Luther felt and knew that he himself was not righteous in himself. So this concept really bugged Luther. It, it ate at him, even. And in a system of religion where the friar, John Tetzel, was selling indulgences to get people out of purgatory, and as Tetzel infamously preached, hear this, 
once a coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. That's the context of Luther's life. And in a system of church tradition and the Pope's teaching emphasized the necessity of personal righteousness and good work to become acceptable or justified before God, you could see here that Luther understandably was conflicted and torn, and Luther was at the end of his rope in light of all this confusing teaching. In Luther's own words, here's Luther's own testimony about his conversion. This is his account of his conversion. Even after being a teacher in the church for some time, listen to Luther. He says, meanwhile, I had already during that year returned to interpret the Psalter anew. So this is the second time through teaching the book through the Psalms, 150 Psalms. I had confidence in the fact that I was more skillful, this was him at the time, after I had lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the one to the Hebrews. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul and the epistle to the Romans. He's wrestling now with what he's teaching in the book of Romans. Listen to what he says. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 1. Speaking of Romans, okay? He says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed that has stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which, according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Luther says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God within an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. Ah, my works weren't cutting it, Luther says. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, Certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Luther was in a bad place in his heart. Struggled with his own sin and guilt and condemnation. And he felt the weight of all that on him. And he struggled immensely with it. Luther goes on and it says, hear this. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Luther says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. 
What an amazing conversion testimony. Here he is, a teacher of the church, wrestling with God's word. And God's word, when he paid attention to the context, you remember hearing that? This is why it's so important to study the word and what it actually says in its context. What happened? Luther gets saved. Luther had read scripture his whole life. He even taught it. But he did not understand this very important concept of justification until that time after teaching through the Bible when he wrestled day and night to understand this very, very important biblical teaching. And today, our passage will take us further into that topic of justification. But then move even to answer the question, What next? What does justified living look like? So I've been justified in the past when I believed. Now what? How does a justified person live their Christian life going forward after they're saved? To be clear, the initial saving faith when justified occurred does not increase or decrease. At all. When you're justified, you are justified at that point. You're not trying to gain or earn or do anything else to further bolster up your justified status. It doesn't increase or decrease in your life. As James White put it in the title of his book that he wrote on the topic, it's the God who justifies. It's not something that we do. We can't declare ourselves righteous in and of ourselves because we're not God. We don't have that authority. It's God who justifies. But we go on as justified persons from there to conduct a kind of justified living. Not living in order to become right before God. Let's be clear here. But living in light of our past justification. Living in light of what God has done to us and for us in the past. This is what our passage addresses. This is the fuel of the life and legacy of Luther. Once he realized, as Luther put it, there I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. For you see, Martin Luther realized that we were not only justified by God's grace through faith the moment we first believe, hear this, but then we also go on to live the Christian life by faith in the gospel fueling us ahead as well. Let's walk through our passage to see that together. In point number one, let's see that all believers, all believers are justified sinners. See it from our text as we pick up from last week now. In verse 17, it says this. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then A servant of sin? Certainly not. Or other translations, may it never be. No, by no means. No way, Jose, Paul says. Remember the context here. Paul is publicly rebuking Peter for his hypocrisy of pulling back away from Gentile table fellowship. And remember the reason that Paul gives Peter for why it was so wrong that we saw the last time was because Peter and Paul, both of them, who were Jews, both of them, who were religious, are just as much saved by faith in Christ 
as the other Gentile believers were as well. You see, there was a kind of superiority that the Jews felt towards the heathen Gentiles who were void of God's law and his promises. But Paul, you see, straightens Peter out. He tells them the Gentiles are saved by grace through faith just as much as you and I, Peter, don't care how religious you think you are or we think that we are or privileged that we are, they're saved in the same way. And Paul here anticipates an objection in our passage. He says here in verse 17 that if we Jews receive justification by faith alone and not by works of the esteemed and privileged law, it's not by that, then he poses the question, does this somehow implicate Jesus as a participator or a servant of sin in all this? If it's not law and the law has nothing to do with it, does this put Jesus on trial here? Hear this, he's kind of like, if it's not by works, and if we Jews are found to be co-equal sinners with all those lost heathen Gentiles as well, is justification through faith in Jesus Christ simply a big old sin party? That's what he's asking. As if a bunch of sinners can just go on happily in their sinful ways. Paul brings up a similar argument here, and actually in Romans, in chapter 6, and verse 1 and 2, and it says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul here puts an end to any suggestion that justification will lead to, and the justified person will it'll lead to a kind of reckless living or uh, that it provides a license to sin. Now you've been justified. Now you've been saved. Now go on and just live like the devil. He puts an end to that argument here. So we, we need to see every one of us here from this passage of Scripture that we are all sinners in this room. Every one of us, I don't care how religious your background is or how irreligious, the irreligious ones know they're sinners, but those of us who may have grown up in the church, we may not see it as much. I don't care who you are. All of us, it it reveals whether we're Gentiles or, or Jewish, all come before God as guilty sinners. But I also want us to see that this doctrine of justification, how we're made right with God, does not mean that it somehow doesn't matter how we live our lives. Are we all sinners? Yes, Paul says it here and reminds Peter of that fact. And Paul says it even stronger in Romans chapter 3, 9 through 12. I want us to see it. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? We privileged Jews any better off? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Bible gives us a picture, a dismal picture of humanity. Those who have faith in humanity and faith in the goodwill of people and, oh, people are just good at heart. The Bible gives a different picture. All of us are sinful and guilty before God. Every one of us. So we are clinging on the edge of a huge mountain rock 
without any climbing equipment and in trouble because of our sin. Every one of us. I don't care if you grew up in church. I don't care if you were raised in a Christian home. Because of your sin, you're in trouble. You're on that rock. You're about ready to fall to your doom because of your sin and guilt. That's all of us. Whether we see ourselves as religious or rebels, we are all under sin. All are guilty. But you see, some are justified. Who might that be? Those who by faith draw near to Christ are declared righteous by grace through faith in him and what he's done for you. No matter what the religious hypocrites might suggest, all are justified apart from works of the law. This leads us to our next point and number two. All believers died to law righteousness. All believers died to law righteousness. See it in our text in verses 18 through 19. Paul says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So Paul here pulls the old bait and switch on Peter. He's like, if I rebuild what I tore down, that is, if I go back to the law for righteousness, and maybe, as an example here, Peter, if I stop eating with the Gentiles, for instance, kind of a little bit of a jab here, because this is what is going on in this context. If I go back to the law after being justified by faith in Christ, after recognizing that the law wouldn't cut it, And even we Jews are sinful and sinners before a holy God. If I do that, who am I kidding, Paul says. He says, if I act like you, Peter, and Barnabas, and the rest of the believing Jews who are acting hypocritically, if I do that, I will be proving that I am a sinner and that I'm sinning in the very act of going back to the law after I've been saved and justified By Christ. Look at this. He tells them, so your hypocritical concern about being associated with unclean sinners, ironically, makes you and the others even more sinful and guilty through the very process of trying to appear squeaky clean and righteous. And Paul reminds Peter, and all Christians for that matter, all of us here in this room, That in our conversions, we put law-keeping righteousness behind us once and for all. In fact, Paul says that we turn away from the law, even in a kind of repentance even. A turning uh, from the law righteousness in order to be saved towards God alone who is the only savior of sinners. We all know what repentance is, right? It's that that 180-degree turn in the opposite direction. We have to turn away from other means of salvations and works and law and things of that nature as well. And Paul is bringing that out strong here. Here's a warning for all of us here in this church. And maybe for those who's grown up in the church their whole lives. Maybe if you're set in your ways and who you've been there, done that, you've heard it before, we could kind of go down a road that everything becomes so familiar to us and we could be in a dangerous place. 
I ask you, are you bored of the gospel here with us today? Have you actually moved on from the good news of the gospel and and started adding over the years other ways to appease your conscience before a holy God or to look good before others even? Are you trusting in your own actions and works and religious practices to keep you in the good graces of God? Is that in your mind? Is even a hint of that in your mind? Well, if so... You need to be reminded along with Peter that you are dead to the law. Dead to doing for salvation. Dead to performing and being on this performance rat wheel seeking good feelings by doing good things before God. We're dead to that, trying to earn our standing before God. Now, don't get me wrong, church. Christians want to do good things things and even have good works prepared beforehand for them to walk into as Ephesians 2 tells us I'm not saying that they don't matter I'm just saying they don't matter for your justification they don't matter for your declaration before a holy God your works have nothing to do with that and we must be careful that we don't fall back into any hint of works righteousness once we've been saved by grace through faith Peter and Barnabas and the others fell back into these ways of thinking and living. Make sure, church, that you do not do the same. This leads us now to our third point and number three. All believers are in union with Christ. Look with me at Galatians 2 and verse 20 for this. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this quite possibly is one of the most well-known and quoted passages in the whole book of Galatians been around the church at all you've heard this passage but it also may well be one of the most misunderstood passages in the book as well so quickly let me tell you what this verse isn't saying because of the misunderstandings the passage is not saying that we somehow blend our personalities and personhood into christ and that we simply let go and let God and kind of go on autopilot or uh, kind of cruise control, set the cruise control in the Christian life. Some, some people have erroneously taught that kind of thing from this passage. But I want us to see that this passage is much more glorious than that. And this passage is about what the theologians call our union with Christ, as the 17th century spiritual goes, and you'll probably recognize it when I start saying it. I'm not going to sing it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they pierced him in his side? 
oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. 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 You see, this passage, along with many other passages in Scripture, point to the glorious reality that you and I were in the mind of Christ, dear Christian, in the plan of God, believer, not only in eternity past, but then in time and history, even when Christ lived and then died on the cross for you. For remember, as we celebrate in Christmas, he came to set his people free, to save them from captivity, to save us from our sins. And you see, in order for him to do that, we had to be in his mind. We had to be united to him in a death like his, as Romans tells us. Let's see it in Romans 6, verses 5 through 8. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, you see that union, union with Christ? We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Every single believer, if you're a Christian here in this room, we're on the mind of Christ on that cross. I mean, he was dying for you, dear Christians, in your individual specific sins. You had to be in his mind, right? You had to. Think about it. If you were to have your sins forgiven and taken care of by Christ, you had to be in view on that cross. Let's say you received a parking ticket in Gallatin. Or if you got a traffic ticket for a J-turn in town. Now, I didn't know what that was until I came here, by the way, just to be clear. And I didn't get a ticket, but someone warned me after seeing me do one in town. And if you don't know what that is, you probably do. It's when someone kind of makes that sweeping left turn into the parking lot, almost like around in the other way instead of going in the natural right, slight right into a parking lot around the town square. Well, let's say you got one of those tickets, or maybe I got one when I actually did that, and you had somebody offer to pay that debt for you. They had to know that you committed the infraction, right? They had to know about it. They couldn't pay that debt for you by not knowing that you'd done anything wrong. They needed to know the offense. Same goes with Jesus. He went to the cross to pay personally, to personally pay your sin debt, believer. And your sin... And you yourself were in his mind on that cross, in his death. And as Romans adds, even in his resurrection, 
So there's a mysterious union that we have with Christ as we are said to have been in Christ on that cross and in his resurrection. So to answer the question of that well-known song, yes, we were there when they crucified our Lord. We were there when they nailed him to the cross, when they pierced him in his side. Not physically, but we were in the mind of Christ in union with him. For he was there on that cross for us with you in mind. I want you to notice how personal this all is. It's not some impersonal thing. If you're growing cold to the news of the gospel please consider refocusing your hearts now on really what it is. It says Jesus loved Paul personally and gave himself for Paul personally. And Paul is speaking as a representative for all believers in this when he says what he does in verse 20. We all have been crucified with Christ. We all are no longer, we all no longer live, but Christ lives in us. We all live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, for me, for you, dear Christian. He died for sin in general, we could sometimes think. Our sins out there in the ether just kind of sin. He died for sin. No, it's much more personal than that. The passage says that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, loved you, dear Christian, and gave himself for you as a substitute specifically for your sins on that cross. He gave himself up for you. The passage says that. You were in his mind in union with him when he died. This is amazing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This leads us now to our fourth and final point. Number four, Christ died to accomplish, to actually accomplish our righteousness. Look at verse 21 now for this. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We end here our sermon reiterating what we saw in our last sermon and seeing again how personal and final and productive Christ's death actually was. You heard me right. I said productive. When you have a productive day, what does that mean for you? What have you accomplished well you are productive because you did what you set out to do in your day right and that doesn't always happen for us does it sometimes we don't even scratch the surface of what we planned for any given day but if we're productive in a given day we accomplish something that we planned to get done. You see, Christ's plan to save you from your sins, dear 
Christian, and his plan was purposeful. And his plan was accomplished on that cross. And as we saw in our last sermon, he not only died to cover the penalty of your sin, he also died to transfer his righteousness over to your account. So that you would be declared righteous before God, even though you remain a sinner. You see, this is what Luther found so life-transforming and overwhelmingly glorious. It's what saved him finally. It's what changed the way that he read the Bible. It's what changed the way Luther related to God. Luther used to think that the holy God was going to smite him if he didn't muster up his own personal works and righteousness himself before God. That's how Luther once thought. That's how Luther once read the Bible. And many people read the Bible that way today, sadly. This is why Luther hated the very thought of righteousness, because he knew how unrighteous he really was. And if we are honest here, we're all going to know that as well. And Luther knew that no matter how hard he tried or how much good that he did, that he still had sin, and he was still in trouble, and that he was still clinging to that rock without any harness, without any rope. But then he realized that the righteousness of God that was in view here in Romans and Galatians is none other than Christ's righteousness itself imputed or credited to the sinners like himself, that he saw himself imputed to their account, credited to their account. Not only did he realize that he was justified or made righteous before God by that declaration, even when he remained a sinner, he realized it was a gift given by God. Even his faith was a gift. So not only did he see justification, but he also knew that the good news of justification, getting saved through faith, not by works, also affected the way that he lived his life day by day after the point of his justification. Remember, he even said in his testimony, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. We are not only justified way back then after we first believed by faith, but then we go on to live our Christian lives by faith as well. Not to get us justified. So let me just sum all this up and, and reiterate here. We don't get justified when we believe and then live out our Christian life by our own strength and works all alone by our own willing and doing. That is not what the Bible teaches. No, not at all. This passage teaches us that we are reliant on God's grace and miracle working faith to work itself out in our lives even as we grow to be more and more like Christ throughout the rest of our lives after we were saved or justified way back then. As Philippians 2, 12b through 13 says, 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so we live out our Christian life and we act and move and strive and seek to glorify God, not in our own strength as Christians, but empowered by God through faith that is given as a gift, that is rooted on the one who loved us and gave himself for us, that is rooted on the gospel. As Galatians 2.20, and we've got to go back to that verse because it's such a pervasive, important uh, verse. It says, I have been crucified with Christ it, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in, the flesh. What? I live by faith. You see that? In the Son of God. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see how God saves us through the gospel and we're justified by God's grace through faith and all of Jesus' righteousness is given to us. He takes all of our sin. But then we move on in our Christian life, not in order to get justified, but to live out of faith in in Christ that he's given us. We live motivated and, and in light of this glorious gospel day by day going forward. And notice here, back to verse 21, that Paul says that the grace of God is not nullified or made void by this gospel-centered justification. Not at all. In fact, the grace of God would be made void if it were actually through the law. If it were through the law, it would be void. Even stronger, I'll say this, Christ's death, as the passage says, would be of no purpose and useless if righteousness could be gained by works of the law. Oh, that's a terrible thought to think that his death was purposeless, that it did not accomplish anything, that it was useless, that it was worthless. We can't even fathom that. But Paul says that it would have been worthless if you could be made right or righteous through works. He said it would be worthless. But of course, is it worthless? No, it's not worthless. And do you realize what this means for us as believers? It means that Jesus' death was actually necessary for us and our salvation. The law couldn't and would not cut it at all. Nothing else could. And if the law could not produce righteousness for us, then by implication, Christ's death is the only thing that could and would cut it for us. And as we just celebrated yesterday on Christmas, Jesus came and was born, born to die for sinners and born to die for their sins. You see, he didn't go through all he went through, humble himself to birth in a lowly manger and to live a a persecuted life and then to die a substitutionary death on the cross and suffer on our behalf. Because of a purposeless charade. Not at all. He accomplished something. He actually accomplished for us, believer. His death had the purpose of giving you a way to be declared righteous before him. So we live our lives in light of this gospel-centered justification, Christians. And our justified living 
or our living after we are saved and justified back when we first believed is also by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and our salvation. Praise God for this great gospel truth. So Christians, turn with me and with Luther and with Christians in this room and Christians throughout all of history, past, present, and into the future, turn with us towards the wonderful Savior again and again and again. And turn to the gospel that fuels and encourages us and that faith that was given as a gift. Let it fan a flame in your life as you continue to live in light of this great gospel inspired faith in the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this great gospel message. We're thankful, Lord, that you saved Luther when you did. We're thankful that you saved us when you did. We're thankful for the people that you might save into the future when you will save them through faith in your son, help us to not grow cold or weary in light of these great truths. Help us not to turn to something else. Help us not to turn to another gospel. Help us to cling to this our whole lives. And would you encourage us all today in this great, amazing message of salvation through your son? And would you encourage us to live our life in light of this great gospel fuel that we would live our Christian life not in earning, O God, but in seeking to glorify you, Lord, in all that you've done for us. We say this in Christ's name. Amen.